from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. friends and familiars. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer of short fiction that pushes the envelope in ways you can't even imagine. Her prose is transgressive, to say the least, and may not be for everyone, but if you're a listener of the Dark Mind Podcast, I think it will be right inside your wheelhouse. She's joining me today to talk about her collection of short stories with an included novella entitled We Are Here to Hurt Each Other. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Paula D. Ash. Paula, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Vince. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me on this 11th day of June 2023. I came across your book by Bookstagram recommendation and was thrilled to find the transgressive prose that I love. Your stories not only push the envelope, but they challenge the standard formula for storytelling and bring you into dark places where the narrative sometimes completely abandons you. So thank you for being a fearless writer and thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much. That's so kind of you to say. I really appreciate that. Absolutely. Well, so right off the bat, when you open the book, you're met with a content warning, which states that the following book contains, quote, extreme graphic violence, child endangerment, child assault, child murder, sexual assault, incest, necrophilia. So when it comes to transgressive prose, I think you've got all the boxes checked. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, you're hard pressed to find anything that would fall into the transgressive banner that's not included in that book. So yeah, yeah, it's a laundry list of depravity for sure. <laughs> Well, you mentioned in the outro with regard to the maxim that hurting people hurt other people, mm -hmm. that the answer to whether or not you're writing the stories merely to hurt the reader is sometimes yes. But you also state that it isn't sadism. Can you kind of expand on that? Yeah, it's not sadism in the sense that I get pleasure out of hurting people with my fiction, but it is something that I want to do. Like it's intentional. It's not sadistic, but it is intentional. And I think what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get people to kind of, I'm trying to get people to wake up. I'm trying to get people to be more aware of the impact that their actions have, the impact that 
past generations' actions have had on them. In our culture, we talk a lot about forgiving and forgetting, and like forgiving people for their transgressions, as it were. I don't like that. Uh, I'm just saying, <laughs> I just, I'm not into forgiveness culture at all. And it's not because I don't think that people can move on from things, but I think we do a great disservice when we pretend that the stuff that people do to each other, particularly, I come back to this again and again, in the collection, the stuff that people do to children in particular, we treat it like it's an aberration, like it's an outlier. And it's not. It's sad. I hate that that's the truth. But, you know, child abuse of a variety of sorts is actually kind of common, particularly if you have an expansive definition of child abuse. So that's just one example, whether we're talking about, you know, child abuse or CSA, like child and sexual abuse or sexual abuse of adults. That is not as rare as we imagine it to be. And so until I think we as a society recognize that, we're just going to keep repeating it. We're just going to keep doing the same things over and over again because we see it as a rarity, but it's not rare. It's a common feature of what humans do. And until we deal with that, I think it's one of the reasons why it continues to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I understand what you're saying about the perception that it's an aberration. When you think about it, there's almost memes that involve child sexual abuse, like the creepy uncle. You know, people people yeah. throw that around like yeah. it's, oh, it's just some funny thing, like the creepy uncle. What are you talking about, though? What are you talking You're about? You're talking about an uncle doing, at the very least, fondling their niece, the very mm -hmm. most sexually assaulting them, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, it's unspeakable stuff, and we reduce it to a joke. And actually, it's funny you mentioned that as an example, because I have a, it's not finished yet, but I have a work in progress that talks about when I was growing up, like, there was, like, this little sing-songy thing. We'd call people Chesters if they were, you know, like a creepy uncle. And it was like, why were we joking about that? Like, that's not funny. And I'm absolutely certain that the people in my group of friends, just given the statistics, I'm certain that some of the people in my group of friends were victims of some kind of childhood sexual abuse, if the numbers are correct, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like, why are we making jokes about that? Why do we make memes about those sorts of things as if these aren't things that completely and very often devastate people's lives and then devastate the lives of those around them and the other people in their family and in their orbit. So, yeah. 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 Well, your first story, Aspects of Emptiness, talks about what we were like when we were, quote, unstructured. Eastern religions talk about our sense of self as being false. And when you think about it, unless there's something that happened in the womb, we're born with this blank hard drive and we begin downloading our firmware from the age of one to seven and our software from the age of seven to, I guess, like 40 or whenever we seem to be set in our ways. So was this story an attempt to attack the false self we develop over time and to remember the darkness from whence we came? And if not, can you kind of expand on what you meant by the the term unstructured? So I think your answer is better. <laughs> I want to stick to that. Because um, <laughs> I love that metaphor of firmware and software. But essentially, it is. It's the idea of who we were before socialization happened. So my background is in sociology. And so one of the theories that I find to be very illuminating is social learning theory that basically posits, you know, when it comes to nature versus nurture, certainly there is some nature in there. 
but mostly it's nurture. It's our environment. It's what we're exposed to and the way that we learn to be in society. That process is called socialization. And that process is what becomes ingrained in us is what we encounter in our youth and in our teenage years. And then around adulthood, things start to solidify a bit, kind of like what you said, once we hit 40, for some people, we're kind of set in our ways. That doesn't mean that there's no possibility for change. That doesn't mean that once the world gets a hold of us, we have no power to change who we are. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that in the sense of the story and being unstructured, it's who you could have been had circumstances gone differently, who you could have been before the world kind of got its hands on you. And again, it's not necessarily negative, but I'm always intrigued by that idea. I'm always intrigued by that idea of like that we come from some kind of formlessness and it's a mystery, you know, like we can't know what that's like. So it's kind of playing around with that concept for sure. Yeah. I mean, the most clear manifestation of that seems to be like a newborn baby, you know, they're completely sentient. They're aware of their surroundings, but there's no, there's nothing attached to it like hangups or judgments or I think, what is it they say that babies, they can feel hunger, only fear of particular things like fear of loud mm -hmm. noises and separation. So something maybe? like that. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. 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 I took lifespan developmental psychology a long time ago, and I remember bits and pieces. Mm -hmm. but, yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's exactly it. I mean, newborns are not aware of themselves. You know what I mean? Like you said, they're sentient, they're conscious, but certainly they're not aware of like mortality. And I think that's really a big kind of theme because that's something I'm always just kind of <laughs> interested in is how human beings, as far as we can understand, we are the only conscious species on the planet that's aware of its own mortality. And that drives so much of our neuroses, for sure. Um, mm. <laughs> but that drives so much of who we are and what we do and what we don't do. And so I think that's also part of the whole idea of being unstructured is that it's just, what if you weren't aware of that? Mm. Is it even possible to be human without being aware of that? Mm. So. so in the story, the removal of the facade mm -hmm. is kind of like a metaphorical attempt to be like, you know, I've got this toxic nurture that I want to get rid of and go back to that unstructured mm -hmm. state. Yeah. Somebody asked me once they had read the collection and they were like, what is your deal with faces? Why do you hate faces so much? And it never <laughs> occurred to me. It sounds silly. Like after, you know, it's looks been out for over a year. Like, obviously, I have a thing about faces. I don't know why. But I think it's because that process or ritual, as it functions in the stories, it kind of serves as a way to say all this stuff that makes up this face that's recognizable, these features that I inherited from, you know, my ancestors and my parents and all that, these markers of my identity, these markers that tell people who I am, because again, that's the whole sociological, like my face tells you who I am and all that stuff. What if I just got rid of that? And instead of, you know, me being defined by what I look like to other people, obviously, if you don't have a face, that's a definition as well. But <laughs> if you remove that act of removing, I think is very, it's an attempt at self-actualization beyond what most of us are, I think, comfortable pursuing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, to continue on with that conception of faces, the next story, Carry On, Carry On, and listeners at home were talking about the first Carrie, C-A-R-R-Y, second C-A-R-R-I-O-N. 
is a continuation of the first story with regard to a woman that not only removed her own metaphorical mask, but influenced another person to do the same. And there's talk of the man with the face of teeth, which I think is clearly illustrated on the <laughs> cover of the book, and uh, uh, mentioned that death isn't the end. Could you expand a little bit on what the character is implying actually does lie beyond death, as well as the concept of the uh, man with the face of teeth? Yeah. So to be completely clear and hopefully not to spoil it too much, part of that dialogue is just because it's creepy, right? Like it's weird when people say mm -hmm. things like you don't know what lies beyond death. Like that's just creepy and weird. Oh, yeah. Um, but at the same time, it is also a reference back to that whole idea of being unstructured, that formlessness, that whatever was before, that that's what lies on the other side of, you know, this kind of ritualistic facelessness. And then as far as with the man with the face of teeth, did you want me to like explain like him as a character or... Um, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to tread the water of not giving away a bunch of spoilers, sure, but my own curiosity <laughs> is is making me behave very selfishly. I apologize. <laughs> I think that's okay. I think that's understandable. Because again, like the dude, he's on the cover, you know, he's, a, he's quite the striking image. And that's, you know, shout out to Don Noble at Rooster Republic Press for that illustration. Yeah, I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, Vince, the man with the face of teeth is largely still a mystery to me as well. I know I have other stories that I'm working on. I have another story and another novella, perhaps a novel. I'm so terrified of writing a novel, though. Like that's <laughs> so we're just going to say novella just to make me feel better. Um, right. So there's more to his story. There's certainly more to that world in which carry on, carry on and aspects of emptiness take place. There's a much bigger story. I know about that. I know some things about the man with the face of teeth, but a lot of like who he is, I also don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I can say that as a character, you know, he's kind of like a harbinger. He's obviously terrifying, but he's also a symbol. He is kind of like a almost. Do you feel like he's a part of your psyche or is this purely a character? That is a good question. I have never been asked that before. Um, hmm. I think the fact that it's taken me a while to answer that question probably suggests he's part of my psyche, too, which I never mm. thought of. For me, the man with the face of teeth represents a kind of, you know, almost a prophetic kind of vibe. Like, he certainly knows more than he's communicating. There's stuff that he knows that he's not telling people, but there's a reason why he's not telling people. And I think that as far as like representations and symbols go, I mean, I think I've done another podcast. We were talking about like formative experiences and fear. And one of the things that I've always been really intrigued by, but also terrified of was the book of Revelations from the Bible. And so I've always been intrigued by like these ecstatic experiences, you know, these revelations in the whole like, you know, angels and be not afraid, but they're terrifying. And, you know, all that stuff is just really intriguing to me. So I think that he plays kind of a role in that way. I mean, the angels and a lot of Christian theology represent messengers. And I think maybe the man with the face of teeth functions similarly. Okay. Well, Speaking of religious iconography and ecstatic visions, in the next story, 
all the hellish cruelties of heaven, you tell of a young woman that's involved in a religious sect whose basis for salvation is the realization that life is pain, torment, and cruelty, and the sect member's awakening is through a survival of extreme suffering. And there's a lot of Eastern philosophy that says that life is suffering. I think there's some debate as to whether the Pali word in Buddhism, dukkha, means suffering or unsatisfactoriness or something like that. But did you base the uh, philosophy of the religious sect in this story on the philosophy of any real religion? And if not, where did the inspiration come from? Uh, it's again, funny because this is another first. I don't think anybody's caught that before. I didn't do it intentionally, but when I was younger, I was a very big fan of Eastern religions. I took a lot of college classes in Eastern religions and Eastern philosophy. I studied a lot of the foundational texts for Taoism and, you know, various types of Buddhism. So I don't think I did it consciously, but certainly it was in there. I still read the Tao Te Ching occasionally. So, yeah, I think that's part of it. So it's probably a mix of like Eastern religions and Eastern Buddhist understandings of like pain and suffering and life and all that. But then it's also Hellraiser. Like I'm not going to lie, it's a lot of – I love Clive Barker's work and The Hellbound Heart is very foundational to me. And the film Hellraiser is like my favorite movie of all time. And so, yeah, I mean I think it's a mixture of that. But it's also, like I was about to say, it's those two things. But it's also – and this, this sounds bad, but it's also kind of genuinely what I believe – I don't live my life according to that principle, but I have had times in my life where I have felt that to be absolutely true. Now, do I think that all the time? No, but I know that it can be true. I know that sometimes you can be in a place where life is absolutely nothing but suffering and cruelty and misery, or at least it can seem like that. So I think that's a lot of what that is about. It's just trying to because for me, one of the things that I kind of struggle with is once you recognize that, it changes you, right? Like once you see or understand that that is a facet of human existence, that you can't escape suffering if you're alive, you genuinely cannot. Once you kind of recognize that it does change the way that you interact with the world, it does change the way I think that you interact with yourself and with people. And so I think that's a big part of what that cult is kind of built on. The stuff that I really like about like cosmic horror. And I was very, 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 very influenced by Thomas Ligotti's Conspiracy Against the Human Race. That's one of my, I mean, to say it's a favorite book is an understatement, you know. So yeah, I think those were the influences that shaped that particular group, we'll say. Okay, interesting. Well, so your story Exile in Extremists brings up a point that I've thought about a lot. So the fact this is going to sound kind of weird, but the fact that the look someone gets in their eyes when they have an orgasm, as well as the tonic <laughs> phase of the body kind of locking up, mm -hmm. is the same appearance that people have when succumbing to death, like a witness arrest, not something that kills them instantly, you know, something that's like cardiac related that involves the body of being deprived of oxygen until they pass away. Mm -hmm. So in fact, the uh, orgasms often referred to as la petite mort, which means the small death. Mm -hmm. 
So do you think that when you die, that instead of suffering, which is what it appears, you experience a massive dump of endorphins that leads you into the big, beautiful sleep? And if so, what do you suspect happens after death, if anything, if that's not too personal? <laughs> no, no. Like, wouldn't that just be amazing? Yeah. But I mean, I guess that's the kicker, though, because if that were the case and if we knew that, like people would just be, you know unaliving themselves left and right. <laughs> we can't have that. No. So, I, you know, honestly, so I'm one of those people, like I love, like what's beyond the veil and cosmic horror and all that weird, like the king in yellow and all that stuff. But I'm also like a real, I consider myself a humanist. I'm a secular humanist agnostic. So, I mean, I think when you die, like that's it. But it's like one of those things where like I want to kind of be wrong about that. At the same time, though, for me, it always comes back to, I think it's one of Newton's laws of thermodynamics that energy is never created or destroyed. It's only transformed. So I don't know what happens after death, but I'm pretty sure that something happens. But what that specifically is, no clue. No clue. Yeah. Yeah. What is it? The law of conservation of energy or something like that? I think I think yeah. it's that one. Yeah, I think it's that one. Because we see that in nature. And I don't mean nature is in like just like plants and stuff. I mean, like in the natural world, like energy always comes from somewhere and goes somewhere else. So even if we can no longer visually see it, there is still some change happening at some level. So, yeah. So, again, I don't know what happens, but I do think that something happens. I just don't think we're privy to it. Yeah. Sometimes I would like to believe there's something after and then sometimes no. Like I just... So I'm like, you know what? I'm just tired. I'm tired. I just, <laughs> I don't want, like, like, I just want to be done. I just want to be done with this. You mean there's more? Jesus. Like, I'm uh, so tired, yeah. please. Um, but like in those time periods where I am kind of nervous about the prospect of there being just emptiness, I think the most disturbing answer I ever got was from somebody that considered themselves a secular humanist. And I was like, so what do you think happens after death? And they're like, well... Do you remember what it was like before you were born? <laughs> it's like, oh, God, don't don't make me yeah, think that way. I mean, it would seem so. That's generally where I kind of that's kind of where I land on that, too. Like yeah. whatever it was like before you were born, that must be what death is like. It seemed like a very circular kind of process. But then I think of like circular, like circularity. And then it makes me think of like reincarnation. And that's another thing. Like, I'm just like not. This sounds bad. I'm like, please don't let reincarnation be real. I don't want to come back well, here. <laughs> I mean, isn't that the heavenly state of Buddhism is nirvana, which is the ceasing of reincarnation? Yes. yes. Of samsara? Where finally, yeah. Where you're you just know, level like. Level up beyond. Yeah. 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 yeah oh, I don't know. If that's true, I hope I'm. <laughs> hope you nice reach nirvana. <laughs> <laughs> this is exhausting. Uh huh. <laughs> Well, in your story, Jacqueline laughs last in the gaslight. A woman has to vie for the attention of her husband from other promiscuous women, but in a much different way than you would think <laughs> from hearing my description. I'm trying to you know, keep the spoilers yeah. away here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this story has a touch of humor, though, as well as a happy ending. So I was curious to know, was this meant as sort of a palate cleanser for the collection? And if not, what made you decide to give it sort of a, I mean, it's not like a light humor. It's kind of dark sure. humor, but it's a happy mm -hmm. ending. Yeah. I mean, I really like Jacqueline and I'm not going to give too much away, but I'll mm -hmm. just say, I really like Jacqueline as a character and I like her 
intentions. I like the, again, once people read the story, if you haven't read the story already, you'll be like, Paula, that's sick. But then it's like, you are reading my book. What do you expect? <laughs> but I like her intentions. I like her motivations. I like that what she wanted was her, she wanted her husband back. And specifically, she wanted him back in a sexual way. And I thought that was not something that we encounter quite often. Maybe I'm reading the wrong books. I don't know. But it just <laughs> isn't something that I've encountered a lot in the stuff that I read. And I just I wanted her to have a kind of I wanted her to have a kind of sexual agency that I don't often see represented in a lot of literature, um, particularly in a lot of transgressive literature. So I really wanted to give her that kind of agency and give her that kind of motivation. And as far as having a happy ending, I it's funny because I've never heard anybody phrase it that way, but it absolutely does. And that was also very intentional. I wanted Jacqueline to win. It's terrible, but <laughs> I wanted her to win. I know that's wrong, but I did. I wanted her to succeed at her goals and I wanted her to kind of have a happily ever after. But, you know, it's a happily ever after for her, but not everybody. So, so when you say it's not something you commonly come across with regard to other transgressive literature, the sexual agency in a woman, like they're usually not trying to regain that for themselves? So a lot of, and again, I am a incredibly slow reader, a very slow reader. And I don't read like I used to, you know, how when you were a kid and like when I was a kid, I just devoured mm -hmm. books like I devoured novels. I can read like three or four novels in like a week. And my attention span <laughs> has aged. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. My attention span and just like my energy is just has aged. So, again, there's probably a lot that I'm missing, but I don't often read books where women have a sexual agency and that attempt at having a sexual agency doesn't go unpunished. Like a lot of the stuff that I read, if a woman expresses some level of sexual agency, it's punished in some way. Like either it's punished by the protagonist or if she's the protagonist and it's punished by the person she's with or, so, you know, there's some kind of like loss for her. And I wanted to write something where that didn't happen. Like I particularly thought it would be interesting. Like how do you write something like that that takes place in like Victorian England of all places, like in Victorian London of all places where the gender norms and gender expectations are even more rigid than they are, but in some ways not than they are today. And so I thought that was a really interesting kind of narrative challenge to try and make that happen. Okay. Well, the story, because you watched, deals with the strange phenomenon of one child named Lily being abused, but not the others, as well as the fact that Lily's abuse is being passively observed by the rest of the family. And I know that happens. A lot of mm -hmm. times I think it happens to the older child. Is that? From my understanding, yeah, it's usually, well, it just depends. It also depends on if they're multiple. So it depends on like, is it a family of like just two kids or three kids or, or is it a family where like if there are twins and then like single kid, like it's it depends a lot. But usually it's often the older, the older once the once the younger child comes, then the older child receives abuse. OK, so from active abuse by the father to active observation by the mother to passive observation by the children did this situation evolve from Lily not fighting back or was there something about Lily that alienated her from the rest of the family? 
And can you kind of expand on this strange, dysfunctional dynamic? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And to be perfectly honest, I'm not sure. Like, I wonder even like while I was writing it, I was like, why are they picking on her as opposed to all the kids? There's three kids all together. The other two are not abused to that extent, but Lily is. Again, I, I think initially, I think in one of the earlier drafts, there was maybe an implication that Lily was perhaps a little bit developmentally delayed, and that's why they had done it. But I know I didn't like that to carry that into further drafts. So I don't know if that's just kind of like a slight remnant that carried over, but I know I... I didn't want it to sound like they were punishing her for being developmentally delayed because that kind of defeated the purpose of what they were doing. And so I honestly think when I'm thinking about like the parents, the mother and the father as characters, there really was no reason. There was no reason other than they could. Like that was the reason. Like they could do that to a child and they just happened to pick Lily. She didn't do anything wrong. I think it would be unfair to suggest I mean I get what you're saying like was there something about her that they you know the way that like sociopaths will pick up on people who are vulnerable in certain ways like so maybe it was something like that which I mean that's possible but I think as far as like the actual like her as a character I honestly think the parents picked her because they could didn't they make mention that um what was it a boy and a girl didn't the boy and the Mm -hmm. girl kind of stick up for each other yeah Yeah. i think it was maybe because she was like the third kid (laughs) like the two of them could link up and like protect each other but lily was like the outsider to them but then it's like was she the outsider because she was abused or did they abuse her because she was the outsider so it's you know Mm. and i know that sounds like kind of vague and ambiguous but that was also intentional because i didn't want to like give the parents any kind of justification for how they were treating her yeah even if it's, you know, a non reason, I still didn't want to like give them like a specific like, oh, they did this because of X. Like there is no reason. They just did it because they could. Yeah. Well, your story, the mother of all monsters was intense and <laughs> it deals with having the indwelling potential for violence. Now, I'm trying to remember, it seemed like in this story, the contention was that it wasn't so much nurture, it was nature. Mm -hmm. And so like when it comes to people that are violent and sadistic, it's kind of scary to think about exactly how much of that is nature and how much is nurture, you know, because if someone's abused as a child and then abuses others as an adult, that makes sense. And Mm -hmm. that makes us feel better to an extent because it makes sense. Mm -hmm. But how would you tell that they're doing it based on toxic nurturing from the parent? Mm -hmm. Or are they just inheriting a trait that would have they would have kept even if they had been removed from the parent by being adopted? It seemed like you said with your job, with a sociology background, you say it's primarily nurture. Mm -hmm. Is there a percentage or can you kind of talk about that? It's always, genuinely speaking, it's always, and like my background is in like academic sociology. Like I'm not a psychologist or anything, you know, like I don't, you know, work with people. What would, like somebody that's autistic, you could say neurodivergent. What would you call somebody that was a psychopath? You know, like. I mean, that's just. 
psychopathology like psychopathology just, yeah yeah like there's just pathological i think there's probably some better terms for that but I, for me as far as my understanding goes it's it's always nurture because when we look at people who commit the most violent crimes generally speaking they always have some type of violence in their own background and it's almost always either witnessing domestic violence or they are victims of domestic violence, they're victims of abuse, particularly in childhood. That's a really big key indicator. And sometimes some of the other ones are things like traumatic brain injury can play a role. But those two are the big ones. As far as like the characters and the mother of all monsters, I think that one I kind of twisted it around. I kind of inverted the direction I tend to go because I just thought it was creepier that way. <laughs> like, <I just laughs> well, yeah, because it's, it's like... Because it's creepy. Like, no, it doesn't make sense. It just happens. <laughs> it just happened. Like, there's nothing... Even with nurture, which, again, I think as far as, like, the real world goes, it is generally nurture. Like, you can view that in an optimistic sense, right? Like, if it's nurture, then there's some level of control we have over this. Like, we know, generally speaking, if, you know, a kid's basic needs are met... If they aren't emotionally abused or neglected, if they aren't physically abused or neglected, if they know they have a stable, consistent figure in their life who protects them, who takes care of them, who loves them, all that good stuff, nine times out of ten, they'll be just fine. You know, they'll be just fine as adults. But if it's nature, all bets are off. All bets are off. <laughs> I was in high school, I believe, when. Jeffrey Dahmer was arrested. I think I was in high school when that happened. But I remember like so many people, I've talked about this before, like so many people blamed his mom in particular. They blamed his family, but they particularly blamed his mother because she had had a history of like some emotional problems. But Dahmer himself, he wasn't abused as a child. He wasn't abused. He wasn't neglected. He came from a middle class you know, pretty stable. Again, the mom had some emotional issues, but the pretty stable home life. I think the parents separated when he was kind of young-ish, but they still were in contact with him. He lived with his grandmother for quite some time. But again, all that stuff that says this kid should have been okay, he just wasn't. Mm -hmm. And the mother of all monsters is very much influenced by that whole saga of Jeffrey Dahmer. It's not a retelling or anything like that, but it was very much, I had that on the brain just because as somebody who at the time when I wrote the story, I wasn't a parent, but it made me really think for the first time, when you become a parent, you don't know what you're bringing into the world. You know, like you mm -hmm. can try your damnedest to give that kid everything in the world that they would need to become a, you know, actualized, loving, healthy adult and it could still just go all to hell you know what mm. i mean and so that's a lot of that's a lot of what that story is about like people are just really in a lot of ways very unpredictable mm. and it's not you know to place the blame on parents certainly i'm a parent i wouldn't want to you know suggest that it's the parents fault unless there is you know like actual overt abuse and yes that is in that case yes but just the unknowability of like how people are you just don't know or something else happened outside of their childhood or, or things like that that lead them some traumatic experience that leads them down that path that has nothing to do with how they were raised as children so you just you know you just don't know it's anxiety inducing <laughs> to say the least yeah well your novella telesignatures from a future corpse deals with a woman overcoming the grip of her maternal instinct, much like in the mother of all monsters. Mm -hmm. 
One of the ways that the maternal instinct can go wrong is when mothers enable their sons, like especially when they have a drug problem, they literally love them to death. Mm -hmm. Do you think that concept as a story element is so compelling because something beautiful is turning against both the mother and her son? And if not, what would you say makes that so compelling? I mean, I think part of it is I really like <laughs> this, this is why I write horror because I'm messed up. But I think it's I mean, I think it's interesting. I really find it intriguing when that dynamic between parent and child becomes like a liability, like it becomes like in the case of telesignatures, it's that love and affection that is part of what drives the tension of the story. Mm. So I think it's also compelling because that's not how things are supposed to be, right? Like I write a lot about families because, you know, like you grow up in a family and you think your family's normal because it's the only family you've ever had. Mm -hmm. But then you talk to other people and you see other people's families. You're like, wait a minute. My family doesn't do that. That's, yeah. Are we weird? Well, we might be weird. You know what I mean? And so and I don't mean that necessarily always like a sinister way. It's just like you don't know what's abnormal. And so somebody shows you kind of what their normal is. So I think that's also what's compelling to me about that dynamic, particularly in that story, is that it's in some ways a perversion of that. And it's the resolution sort of requiring that somewhat similar or very similar in some ways to Mother of All Monsters that requires, you know, a parent to make an impossible choice, mm -hmm. you know, like, I mean, again, like I said before, like I'm a parent. So part of the reason why the stories kind of go where they go is because like, that's the worst thing I can imagine mm -hmm. like happening. But it's interesting because I've had talks with other horror writers who are parents and they say, you know, after they became parents, there's stuff that they just couldn't write anymore. And for me, it was kind of the opposite. Like I became a parent and I was like, Oh, there's a whole new vista of things for me to be afraid of now that I didn't, you know, <laughs> that I didn't realize before. Yeah. So, and so I find that to be really, really terrifying, but I also find it to be pretty compelling as well. Yeah. Well, so in the outro, you mentioned that some people read your prose for the sake of the shock and the thrill of the transgression, which I would say I do, but also agree that I read it for, as you say, a bizarre and bitter reprieve. I also read it for a sense of solidarity in experience and perception. What is some of the most memorable feedback you've gotten from your readers? Yeah. So like I mentioned before, the the people, the folks who have contacted me who have said that they themselves are survivors of some kind of trauma from all different, you know, whether it's familial or just circumstantial, whatever, that was really, 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 really moving to me. I consider that sacred because I never expected that in a million years. Before the book came out, my editor and I, uh, my editor is Sean M. Thompson at Nixtating Books. And I remember we were talking about the book and he was like, this is really some really heavy, heavy stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know if anybody's going to want to read this. You know, <laughs> like, it's, like, it's, it's, it's a lot. And like, I realize, like, I recognize that it's not an easy book for a lot of people to read. Yeah. But not only did this book somehow has managed to find an audience, it's managed to connect with the people who I think in my heart of hearts, I was trying to write for. Like I wanted to tell stories about people who, I don't want to say too much, but like kind of like myself, not in all the ways depicted in the book, but like people who like myself feel like they have 
endure some kind of trauma, people who feel like they are damaged, people who feel like, you know, they've been wounded. I wanted to write stories for those people because I think we don't often get stories about that. You know, we get stories about heroes and we get stories about, you know, people who make smart choices all the time. My characters often make terrible choices because, um, <laughs> you know, that's life. You make bad choices sometimes. Uh-huh. And so I really wanted to write to those people. But I didn't say that, you know what I mean? Like the book came out and I was just like, hmm, you know, we'll see what happens. But the fact that the book found an audience and found those people and continues to find those people, I can't thank those people who have told me that and who have expressed that. I can't thank them enough. And just the people who are enthusiastic about the work because it wasn't expected. And then as far as like unexpected feedback, like some of my favorite, like my absolute favorite writers either blurbed the book or had really lovely things to say about it. Yeah, and have, that just blows my mind. You have a whole back cover of blurbs here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And I was just like, and I remember like asking for blurbs and I was just like, S.P. Muskowski is not going to, she's not going to give me a blurb. Like, that's crazy. Like, how am I going to get, I'm like, I can't get a blurb from Gemma Files. This is ridiculous. What am I doing? <laughs> you know, and for all of those people, it blew my mind. And even, you know, the reviews and stuff have just been so, for the most part, I mean, like I said, I know this book is not for everybody. And the reviews reflect that. Um, some people <laughs> do not like this book. I think they don't like me, you know, and that's fair. That's fine. Like I said, like a month ago, I had some people who were like, oh, hey, I heard you wrote a book. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, is it scary? And I'm like, yeah, it's scary. They're like, is it Stephen King scary? And I'm like, mm, you know, <laughs> it's a little I bit more than that. Just, yeah. I'm like, maybe you should just read something. Else. Don't read my book. And like, I literally told them not to read my book. And people are like, why would you tell somebody not to read your book? Like, cause they can't handle it. It's not for everybody. Like, it's really not. And so, yeah, like, I know, you know, like, it's not just the cover image. Like, this book has teeth. It will hurt you. This book will hurt your feelings, <laughs> you know, if you let it, if you're not ready uh, for that. And I don't say that as like a flex. Like, that's just, that's just kind of how the book is. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, what is the life of Paula D. Ash like outside of writing? It's very normal. It's real funny because, again, the subject matter, I can't imagine what people, because like when I read books and they're like transgressive or like out there or whatever, you know, you, your brain does that thing where you think that you, like you assign things to them to the writer. Yeah. Like that person must, they, their life must be wild. And I know better than that now because, you know, I'm married, I have a kid, you know, I have a a day job. I have a very normal life. I write a lot late at night when my wife and my daughter are asleep. On my Instagram, there's lots of pictures of cats Mm -hmm. because, you know, my life (laughs) is in a lot of ways super normal, I think. But that's very intentional because I think that, like, if I didn't have that kind of stability, I think... I don't want to say like I'd have like a crazy life, but I might. And I don't think that would be good for me. You know what I mean? Like for some, some people can handle that kind of stuff. I'm not one of those people. You just leave um, that to the book. <laughs> exactly. You leave that to the book. Like I put all the crazy and the wildness in the book and just let my life be kind of normal and chill. But yeah, it's pretty normal. I live in the Midwest and it's flyover country for a reason. I can say that though. But like if other people say it, then I get mad. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's. You know, my life is pretty normal. Um, I am just a big, huge horror fan. I love horror, everything. And 
Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. I hesitate to say it, but like my life is really boring. I like it. I don't mean that in a bad way, but like it's pretty boring, but that's cool. I like, I like boring. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Paula, it has been a pleasure talking with you. You as well, Vince. Thank you so much. Your questions have been fantastic. Thank you very much. Your answers have been equally. (laughs) (laughs) So as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? Yeah, I had a story published in an anthology called This World Belongs to Us, a collection of horror stories about bugs. It's by From Beyond Press. It's is available now. I think it came out in late May. Some really fantastic stories by Laurel Hightower, Lee Castro, Cynthia Paleo, Kellen Patrick Burke, Jacqueline Johanna Garver, David Simmons, like just a really nice mix of some more established folks and then like some up and comers. It's a really, really good book. I know I'm biased because I'm in it, (laughs) but like it's really a good book. Uh Um, And then I'm working on a story for the second volume in the book of Queer Saints series. The first one came out last summer, I believe. So I'm working on the finishing touches of a story for the second volume in that. And that, I think that collection or that anthology, I should say, will be available. I'm pretty sure it's going to be August because I think we pushed some of the dates back a little bit. So maybe July, August or August, September, something like that. And yeah, you can stay up to date with my work and other nonsense on Instagram or Twitter. It's just <laughs> at Paula D. Ash. Again, Instagram is mostly silliness and pictures of cats because one of my cats, I don't know what her deal is. She just always likes to attack me for some reason. <laughs> I've seen a few of those. <laughs> yeah. Like she's, I don't know what Ripley's deal is. Probably because we named her Ripley. That's probably yeah. the issue. But Twitter is where I talk a bit more about writing. And also one last thing, in October 13th and 14th, I'll be at VoidCon, which is a convention of writers and artists and presses and publishers. It's myself, Charlene Ellsby, Joe Koch. There's a bunch of like really awesome people who will be there. Um, you can find out more about that on my on my Twitter as well. It's at Paula D. Ash. So, yeah. Outstanding. All right. Well, listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Paula, thank you again for joining me. Thank you so much, Vince. You have a good one. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe to the email newsletter by clicking the link in the description. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday, where I will have a poet and an artist that have joined forces to create a dark work of dystopian fiction. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. Welcome to my dream. It's good to see you again. We can kick back now. The show has reached the end. Turn out the lights. It's late in the hour. Yeah.
shine